One more minute. <laughs>
So there was a lot of just really good energy there. And we were, um, we really did make a nice team. And so at the end of each one of us sharing our experiences and answering questions, they said, um, now, can you tell us why in-home support services um, is, <clears throat> it is uh, preventing homelessness? How does it work, you know, with homeless people and this and that? And of course, we all had, had answers to that, that if a person can stay in their home and have somebody care for them, make sure that they're getting the services that they need, they won't become homeless. You know, if they need help paying their bills or whatever it is, even remembering to pay their rent, you know, just simple things like that to keep them from getting evicted. So I found out that um, this whole film is going to actually be going before Congress. Wow. I was, yeah, I was shocked, you know, and the, the purpose of them doing it is to ask for the $3 million grant to be renewed each year. That's what they want. And so if they, if they can interject a lot of the homeless information in there, that of course, it, it, you know, is, is a great, a great uh, advantage for them. But also teaching and training these in-home care workers is, is just a fabulous, fabulous thing, you know? Um, so I was really excited about that. But what was even more exciting is this videographer from um, New Jersey, um, I don't know if you remember Damon and myself and um, the uh, board president of the board of trustees, we all went to go see the days in mm -hmm. and um, what they have turned that into as a, a respite and a hospice uh, care, permanent care, not temporary, permanent care for our fragile homeless people in, in the population. And these are people that were living on the street, have serious chronic illnesses, end up in the ER, then end up three or four days in the hospital, then they end up going to a rest home or a respite care, and most of them cannot hang there. It, they just, they don't like, they feel like they failed, they have certain needs that aren't being met, a variety of reasons, you know. Mental health is in there as well. But this program, that, that we went to go see, I was so impressed by it. And I know that Damon wants um, all of you to also have a chance to go down and see it. It is just fabulous. They are doing such a wonderful work there. And the doctors that had the vision to run with this, my hat just tips to them so much, you know? And when we were down there, I said to them, um, of course, they get funded through the state, and some federal money, but a lot are donations. And so I said to uh, the doctor, I said, do you have a video of this program? Because they're already on a second model. They, they're, you know, they've expanded now, okay? I said, do you have a video that you can go and share with these philanthropists and businessmen that want somewhere to donate? No, you know, we really haven't had a chance to do that. You know, we would love to do it, but Yes. So when I met this videographer from New Jersey, I pulled him to the side and I spoke with him and I asked him, I said, do you do any pro bono work? That was the first question I asked him. He goes, oh yes. He goes, I get back to the community all the time. <laughs> and he had 10 years in recovery 
and he um, has he's from New Jersey. He says, "You fly me out here and you you know, house me." He goes, "I the rest I can do pro bono." I was so excited, you know. It was like I knew that I knew that I knew that they need to have a video, you know. It was just so strong in my in my um, in my heart that they need a video. And then I come in contact with all these video people that normally I would never come in contact with, you know? So I was so excited that this whole thing collaborated, you know, and, um, and I'm going to see where it goes from here. But um, I say all that to say, you just never know when you're going to be in the right place at the right time. And if you make yourself open to different experiences, you know, and be willing to share your experience, it, it's amazing where it can take you. So, um, that's my little story. <laughs> okay, and, um, okay, now we have an action item. We need to nominate somebody to speak. Oh, um, oh I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> we need to approve the minutes from our last meeting. I'll move to approve the minutes from May 8th. I mean, I'm sorry, May 9th. <laughs> Okay. I will call your names for the vote and please state yes or no. Loretta Mellon? Yes. Rachel Harvey Jr.? Yes. Tammy Wilson? Yes. Mark Smith? Yes. The motion passed. Thank you. Okay, now we need to nominate someone for our solstice celebration, which is going to be in Hayward. And what is the date of that? It's um, June 21st, um, 21st. Summer solstice, and it's from noon to 1. Um, lunch will be provided, and it's going to be at the First Presbyterian Church in Hayward, Castro Valley, at 2940 Road Way in Castro Valley. That's right, by Trader Joe's there in Castro Valley. And this is the pastor that um, has been a huge influence in getting tiny homes built, like the ones on Fairmont and different things. Very active with the homeless community, and just a wonderful man. So who would you like to nominate? So it could be anybody, anybody who wants to go to the event and um, essentially the event. Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless program that we co-sponsor with has asked for one of our board members to be available to speak to the group. And we did this last year yes. as well. Yeah, we did. I don't mind going. I'm right there. It's near me. Super. I, I just wanted to say, um, as you guys know, I, I'm on another board and they already tried to recruit me <laughs> and uh, I told them, um, what I'll tell you, I, I'm not available that day. Oh. Um, I'm not available for, for that function. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Tammy. Well, that would be great. It's, it's short and sweet. Pass out awards. Hear what's. Uh... So it sounds like we have a nomination, a self nomination yes. for yes. Tammy. That's great. Um, uh, this is where I'll just I'll lean on Kayla a little bit. Do yeah, you need to sure. on that nomination? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so we can just make a motion to nominate Tammy and then a second and then we can take roll call. Oh, okay. I'm moved to nominate Tammy for to be the representative of the call applicant board for Summer Solstice. Yeah. Summer Solstice. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, right? That's yes. it. Uh -huh. And and Mark, you seconded? Yeah, I seconded. And then so we get to have Brenda do roll call and vote. Lorita Mallon? Yes. Richard Harvey Jr.? Yes. Tammy Wosell? Yes. Mark Smith? Yes. The motion passed. Good. Great. Look forward to 
Jeanette. Okay, um, Derek is coming tonight, and he has a lot to share from the homeless conference, but um, did he tell you he's running late? No. Okay. Um, so are we switching? So yeah, we can just go on to the next okay. uh, item okay, on awesome. the agenda. Awesome. So our next item, item E, is um, H's role in reproductive justice. And we have Anna Altshuler. All right. Great. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for inviting me and giving me this opportunity to speak. Um, I am in the department of OBGYN. I'm an OBGYN by training, and I have some additional training in family planning, which is um, kind of a fancy title for uh, sexual reproductive health services as it pertains to contraception and abortion. And my passion is around really just making sure people get to do what they need to do with their lives when it comes to reproductive health. Um, many hospitals and systems really focus on obstetrics and having babies and sort of think about abortion as something that happens elsewhere. But we know the truth is that people are pregnant at different times in their lives. And at some point they need they need to they want to have that baby and their lives are just right for that other times it's not the right time and many people will experience miscarriages births abortions all of that the full spectrum and i want to just honor people's reproductive goals in their lives and so that's kind of where where the passion is and this is what brought me to ahs to really help us realize this kind of vision of giving people reproductive health care or comprehensive reproductive health care um and just some of you may be familiar with this concept of reproductive justice. It's what um, we used to think about as like the pro-choice movement really fell short in a lot of ways um, where it talked about choice and a right. For many people, it didn't feel like much of a choice if they didn't have options available to them or didn't have access to really exercise their, their what they needed to do at that time. And so it's much more comprehensive. It's about the human right. There's a beautiful definition by a stock sister song. An organization that's really champion this concept and really practices this way. Um, is the human right to maintain personal bodily autonomy, have children, not have children, and parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities. So it's just much more broad. It's not about what you want to do with your body right now, but like what is the context of your life? What do you need now? And your needs may be totally different at another point in your life. Um, and so the other part to this is just to recognize what the realities are that of all the pregnancies that happen, about two-thirds of those people will proceed and have birth, but about a third, uh, the rest of the third will be broken up into abortion or miscarriage. So miscarriages and abortions are really common. A third of people will experience those. So while we really focus on birth a lot in hospitals and prenatal care and all this, we sort of forget about these other aspects of people's lives that are really important too, because they're just so common. Question. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, what um, do you count like, like topics into the miscarriage section, or where does that fall? Yeah, I think it's miscarriages. Um, it's somewhere in between. It's another category that people sort of overlook. It's a really good point. Um, I think in this in this context, they're usually associated with miscarriages in terms of how where the numbers go. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is a study that was done a long time ago in 2013. This slide makes me think of, I don't know if anyone watched Family Feud back in the day, that like game show of like naming the top reasons, like survey size, like what are the most common reasons why someone may choose an abortion? I think we can all probably do very well, like, like get the top three. They're really obvious reasons. They're things that are very practical, very common. So like the top reason is financial reasons why someone would choose an abortion. 
is not a good time, issues with partner, need to focus on other children. You know, more than half of people who have abortions already have children. It interferes with future plans. Someone feels emotionally or mentally unprepared to have a child at that time. So really, really obvious reasons. I don't think we needed to conduct a study to know these reasons. You could probably just think and you would come up with these answers. But it's nice to substantiate to show that life, like circumstances, everyday circumstances will, will impact whether someone can have that child at that moment or need to end the pregnancy and, you know, see where they're at at some other point in their lives. Um, next um, and so just to kind of solidify that point that reproductive justice is not just about abortion. I always worry when people see me, they're like, oh, what she's going to tell me is that I must have an abortion. This is the only that she's pushing this agenda on me. And this is why I started by saying I'm an OBGYN. I'm here to honor all your needs. Um, it's not just about abortion. I just want to make sure you have access to abortion if that's what you need right now, or you have access to that at a later point in your life. So it's while abortion access is critical, women of color in particular, and other marginalized women also had difficulty accessing contraception, this is like comprehensive sexual education, STI prevention and care, alternative birth options, adequate prenatal and pregnancy care, domestic violence assistance, adequate wages to support our families, safe homes, and so much more. Right? So it's the whole thing. It's just recognizing all the different things that contribute to someone's decision at that point in time. And most people that I encounter, don't want to have an abortion, but they feel like they have to, they need to end this pregnancy because their lives are just not situated in such a way where they can bring a child into the world at that moment. So if we did better with all these other areas, you know, people really who are very strongly opposing about abortion, these are, there's so many areas we can improve, like sexual education, you know, really supporting people in domestic violence situations, uh, providing adequate wages. I mean, the number one reason we saw is financial. So if people had the resources to raise their child, they would welcome that child wholeheartedly. It's just they cannot because they don't have the finances and our system is so unjust around wages. Um, so it's just to keep that all in mind. I have a question about the reproductive justice. So does this focus mainly on um, kind of your choice to have an abortion or not have an abortion as opposed to like reproductive abuse where you're forced into having a child, taking care of that child? Is there any help like once you've already experienced reproductive abuse and now you're in this situation or is it just pre if you've gotten caught up in the domestic violence cycle I guess I'm asking mm -hmm. is there any help also for reproductive justice or help now that the child is here you know like you're raising a child you didn't want you didn't ask for maybe someone just threatened to kill you or whatever like you know like how or is there something else to help that as well or is this just what we're speaking? no absolutely it's so it's really comprehensive at all points like the, one of the critiques that's given often is like there's a lot of like pro-life organizations that give diapers, you know, will provide formula and diapers, but that accounts for the first year of life, maybe the first two years of life, and then what, right? And plus, you need so much more than those two things, or if you're in a domestic violence situation, you have the child. What are all the other tools and resources that you need? So that's very much aligned with reproductive justice. Like, yes, let the person make the, proceed with whatever they need to do. And if the choice isn't something they necessarily want, so they're too far along, they can't have an abortion, you know, or or they feel like having the child is the safest process for them in their context. Still support that person, you know, it's without the judgment of, oh, you did this, so therefore I can't provide this for you, is seeing what the resources they need. Our society is not structured in that way, right? Like this is all ideal and like idealistic. Um, but those are the, but if we think about it more broadly, that takes us out of these little silos of like, all you need is just access to an abortion. I'll do this procedure for you. 
Yes, and, you know, there's so much more beyond that. Um, so just a quick overview of what is an abortion. It's a treatment to intentionally end a pregnancy. Um, it's achieved by taking either medications or having a procedure to remove the pregnancy from the uterus. It's safer than continuing pregnancy and giving birth, which I think a lot of people don't recognize is that when a person is pregnant, they're superhuman. Their bodies are asked to do a lot more than, you know, if they would, they would be asked if they weren't pregnant. Their organs are really challenged, their heart, their lungs, their kidneys. And as the pregnancy advances, there's more risk to that person's health. And giving birth, just the process of the delivery is also one of the most dangerous moments in our lives. We can die from hemorrhage, we can drop. Sometimes people have really serious blood pressure disorders that can cause strokes and death. So it's a lot of risk that we take on. So by, for folks who are forced to continue their pregnancies because they don't have access to abortion, which tends to be people of color, those who have really poor access to healthcare or feel like they're being harmed by the healthcare system, so they have reasons to stay away they are forced to continue their pregnancies, take on this risk for their health and similar and give birth, which is asking them to take on really unnecessary risk that they had intended all along to end the pregnancy. So this is super important just to think about is that this is another like reproductive justice perspective is that honoring people's needs at the time when they request it is also preventing them from having harms like staying pregnant and giving birth, especially those are risks they're not really intending to take. Yeah, and, and I think also with um, with substance abuse being you know such a great problem, a lot of our mothers don't even get prenatal care if they're suffering from that, you know, till it's to the point where it's too late for an abortion, or um, they haven't had prenatal care to find out if there's anything else going on with the pregnancy that should have been terminated earlier, or you know whatever the case. Yeah, so it's, it's, and our system is not conducive to welcoming people in who are struggling with substance use disorders. Like, yeah. I'll talk a little bit more about that. Like, this is sort of the, this is one of the reasons I think Damon asked me to present on this. Yeah. It's just like, how are we supporting people that don't have easy access? They don't just make a phone call and show up. Like, how there are lots of barriers they have to overcome to seek care. I think this is like where really AHS can step in and be a leader in helping folks access care earlier, providing the resources needed to get them the care they need, or even help them plug into prenatal care. Sometimes I see patients like three, four visits before they decide what they want to do. A lot of times it's prenatal care. And that's the, what I say is like, I'll be your doctor. I'll be here for you for, you know, the rest of your prenatal care. I'll do my best to be there for the birth of your child. And if you decide that you need to end this pregnancy, I will take care of you and do the abortion and then see you afterwards to make sure you recover well. Like, I, I care for you either way, so the choice is yours, and I'm here to support you through it, which is really nice. But again, being an OBGYN is lovely in the sense that I can provide. There's I don't have a bias into what people choose, you know, right. and we have the resources here, too, to support, mm -hmm. support people even who have um, serious medical conditions. Yeah, and most people, for most people, an abortion can be pretty simple. So if they, we, if they choose this in the first trimester, that they, they decide they need to end their pregnancies, that's usually 90% of the people who come. Not so true for AHS. We tend to see patients later in their pregnancies who are more medically complicated, but nationwide, and probably before the fall of Roe v. Wade, before the Dobbs decision, this was the case for most people really proceeded with this treatment in the first trimester. Yeah. I have, a, I have an unusual question. Yeah. <clears throat> um, when you see patients, um, women patients, um, who uh, may want an abortion 
or may need an abortion, uh, how many, how many um, of that group um, do it because they have because they've been checked out by you, and medically because of possible um, deformity or other things regarding the baby itself? Yeah. So fetal reasons, like something is wrong with the pregnancy, is like one percent. Oh, only one percent. It's really low. I didn't actually. I wasn't very thorough with that original slide of reasons why people have abortions. That's what you hear in the news. I'm right? surprised that that'd be higher. It's really low. It's really low. It depends where you go, though. So in a hospital-based system, um, where we have like high-risk obstetricians called maternal fetal medicine. Where, where I used to work before, I worked closely with genetics counselors, and they would refer all those patients to me. So for me, it felt like 50% of my work, but nationwide, it's actually a small percentage of folks. So that's the reason why they end their pregnancies. For most people, it's really circumstances of their lives and not so much a harm to the pregnancy. There are some maternal reasons too, like the pregnant person themselves is suffering and the pregnancy makes their health condition much worse. Um, which could be like really severe lung disease or heart disease or renal disease. Some of those folks still stay pregnant and want to have a child. They're like, well, it's a huge risk to my health, but I'm healthier now than I will be five years from now. This is my opportunity to have a child. Like I used to work in, um, in Seattle where we would have patients flown in from Alaska. A lot of like, oh, yeah. native groups that were really sick who young people with very, very serious medical conditions. Mm -hmm. and that was the reason for them. They were, like on dialysis, had a renal transplant, even if they were like 25, were on blood thinners to keep their heart functioning, you know, um, really complicated pregnancies, but they're like, this is my chance. And we want to honor that, you know, they're, they know their bodies, they know what's going on. And, you know, if we could do our best to provide them good care, we do. Yeah. Um, of the pregnancies that among homeless um, population, yeah. um, what if any services are given to them um, if they if they carry the baby to turn but they do not want the baby yeah so this is true for anyone who decides to pursue adoption um it's less than one percent too it's a very low number of folks who give birth and then um either make the decision not to parent or are unable to parent you know there's a whole challenge of the legal system around child protective services which i'm not going to go into right now but like there's that's a whole other um challenging side to this that people may want to have that child but are unable to be parents to that child because of the legal issues around that. Um, but in our, are you speaking specifically to AHS and our resources here? I'm sorry. Are you, are you asking specifically to our institution of what we're able to provide? Uh, yes, because um, that's here's my thinking. Uh, a, a lot of the people who are homeless are going to have, you know, have the inability, um, not, well, I shouldn't say the inability, but let's say they don't have the opportunity um, to, to uh, when they do, when their baby is born, um, to give them the kind of environment that baby's going to need uh, in terms of um, growing and as, as a growing child uh, at the time that the birth occurs. Um, so I'm just wondering um, what, if anything, um, is done about that. There, there are programs linked to your program that, that um, offer the mother uh, temporary places to stay, ongoing medical care, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'm sorry. I'm going to be, <laughs> I guess, transparent. But um, the courts right now, they're not um, counting poverty as a crime. So they're not saying if you're pregnant, um, 
you you have to give up your baby. They're really not even counting. They can know that you're homeless. I remember one case I heard both the parents were homeless. They had just had a baby, and they're like, you take the baby, you take the baby. And the judge was like, I don't care. You're both in a bad situation. Somebody take the baby. So um, they didn't offer any resources, but like when you have a child um, in a situation and you're homeless, it's just expected that whatever your life is, whatever your lifestyle is, you'll take care of that baby and you'll move forward. There's no resources. As long as, long as I, the law gets involved if the baby is positive on, in drugs, you know, yes, and then they can't go home with mom. And then that's a whole different Yeah. And and a lot of our homeless are in that situation, unfortunately. There's a lot of linkage with the substance use disorder, so that that's where CPS gets involved. Mm-hmm. Right. There are um, I I live in San Francisco, that's where I spend most of my time working, so I don't know all the details of the connections here. We have our case standard and social workers involved right away on on like labor and delivery and postpartum to see what resources may be available. Sometimes it's reaching out to other family members if they're available mm-hmm. to provide support to raise the child. Um, there are some homes. There are, there's actually, I don't know if we have them here, some really great programs for women there, while they're still pregnant to be in programs to either like, to if they're using substances to get off that and then they have places to we stay afterwards. We have that. The we did Seattle, one is one in Hayward that is, um, it's hard to get in. They usually have very few slots. I don't know the ones. It's hard to get in. Um, it's a it's a wonderful program, a beautiful program. Um, but you, once again, if you're suffering from substance abuse and you're pregnant, um, they will help you through it all. But you have to follow the rules. It's very important. You know, you can't just come and go as you wish. You know, there are definite rules set for the safety of everyone. You know. And that's where a lot of the people don't end up staying. They'll be there for maybe a month and then they can't handle it, and then they'll leave. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's a complex question. It's I very complex. It's, uh, but it's definitely something folks consider too when they're making the decision if they have the offer, if they have a decision to make. Yeah. Sometimes pregnancies are recognized really late and so it's Right, 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 right. Is it still very much like that? 
very much. That's, that's, that's interesting because I know Planned Parenthood operates on the whole women. Yeah. They do. They try. They do. Many of them don't do, not all of them provide abortions. They have an abortion day, but I, we still think of them as the, I think you get the designation as a specialty abortion clinic when a certain percentage of the services you provide are abortion centered. And I think, so not all Planned Parenthoods would be under that definition, right, right, right. but certainly high volume places that, you know, it's the bulk of the services they provide. Right, right. But you're right. Planned Parenthoods do tons of contraception care, caps, yeah. mayors, preventive yes, services yes, for men yes, and yes, women. Yes. So much. Yeah. Yeah. And hospitals account for just a third of the facilities that provide abortions. So hospitals offer the service, but they actually only provide 3% of abortions in the United States. Correct. So, so when we think of hospitals, that's not really where most abortions are. No, no. So us, like Highland Hospital, we don't expect to see a lot. But the ones that we do offer are those for those who are either farther along in their pregnancies or are so medically complicated, they just don't qualify. They're not eligible for services right. in an outpatient setting. Um, so here's just um, to say that what is the role of hospital systems for abortion care since we're not a major player in a lot of this care. Um, it's for folks who aren't able to get care, care elsewhere. Um, we also are able to offer more pain control options. So some people who have history of trauma, for example, for whom like gynecologic procedures are, you know, re-traumatization of whatever happened before, want to be asleep or want to be as comfortable as possible. Um, people who, that's just, that's just what they prefer. A lot of times it's only available in a hospital type setting. Um, we also have access to, theoretically, sometimes it's true, we have access to multidisciplinary care. So that's also just supporting people for all the other care needs they have. If they're having an abortion, sometimes it's just that it's just not a good sign to have a child done. But sometimes it's a lot more complicated. There's mental health issues, there's substance use issues, there's domestic violence. So it's an opportunity to recognize people's needs and to link them into other aspects of care. You know, there could be homelessness. This comes up a lot. I have a lot of patients who are staying with a friend who are undocumented immigrants, you know, from Guatemala, from El Salvador, or staying with a friend, escaped an abusive partner in their original country, came to, by ways of Mexico, had another partner, got pregnant, now is in the United States, crashing with a friend, doesn't have a cell phone, you can only reach it by calling their friend, you know, have some children in other countries, they, they're like pregnant with twins. You know, I just had a patient like that. It's just like, you know, it's the layers, yeah. just the heaviness yeah. of the layers, and they're like, I'm like, how did you even find Highland? How did you get here? And luckily, these are down the street. Because otherwise, they probably would have gone to Planned Parenthood. Yeah, you know, because that's yeah. better name recognition than we are. But because of the, a lot of, for a lot of the like undocumented immigrants, they don't actually know a lot about Planned Parenthood and a lot of the right, 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 right. So that They just know where the hospital is or where the yes. emergency department yes. is, and they and that's their entry point to us. Yeah. So that's, that comes up a lot for me. Um, and we have an obligation. You probably have heard in the news, um, especially uh, last year, around this time last year. Um, how the state declared itself as an sanctuary for abortions. Oakland as well made that declaration. And like practically, what have we done? What do we do? I don't know if there's a whole lot. There's a lot of money that's been um, allocated to support abortion care. I think a lot of the community clinics have tried to expand access as much as they can. Unfortunately, most people who need this care are too far away from California. So when Roe Wade fell, you know, you can see if you were, if I have a map on this slide deck, I may not, but you, the map would just show you that people are just too many miles away to come to California. The lights are super expensive, and it's just too much money to pay for gas, to arrange for all the other details of your life to take off and go to have an abortion in California. So, I personally have a friend that lives in Louisiana that's really a 
I was reading somewhere that they were making laws, so like if you did come here, that when you got back to your state, there was punishment and had to like jail time. That's right. So it's illegal. Some states, states. Some states yeah. 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 So you have to conceal. You have to. And then there's yeah. all this talk about like data security, right? Like, oh, yeah. Don't message about it. Don't have a pregnancy app. Yeah. Don't create any incriminating yeah. evidence that could be used in a court of law against you. And like privacy laws are so old school. There's very little like data security, internet security laws to protect people. So it's a total gray area. So for those folks who are traveling, like hopefully they're not connected to social media or you know, and all those other things. Um, it's so tricky. It's such a hostile environment where it's really hard to know how to navigate. And it's hard enough to be pregnant, right? People are, we're talking about first trimester most of the time. People are nauseated, throwing up, feeling terrible, super fatigued. And now they have to navigate, you know, travel, their other kids, you know, if they have kids, their jobs, school, as they're feeling miserable and are potentially going to be like criminalized for taking care of themselves. It's crazy. It's Which crazy. is going to make social work even more difficult. <laughs> oh, yeah. Your friend is okay. We did all that. Yeah, yes. I just wanted to kind of bring us back to us, um, the just our, the, our county circumstances um that map there that you see the purples are the hospitals that um are in this area the kind of bluish color are the uh clinics that provide abortions all these places provide abortions you can see there's kind of a uh absence of providers in the south part of the county which i think is probably true for a lot of services like hayward has a little bit as a plan here but there but they haven't i think they only do medication abortions they don't provide a lot of procedural abortions Sutter Eden provides a very low volume, and you have to be within the Sutter system, so that's not a viable option. Then you have Planned Parenthood East Oakland. They oftentimes refer patients to us who are too medically complex. So the south part of the county really doesn't have a lot of options, unfortunately. Um, you don't mind going to the next slide. Um, and AHS is not a big player in the care provided in this county. We don't, this, is, this is very um, approximate data that I was able to obtain from um, Alameda Alliance claims data to get a sense of all the people assigned to Alameda Alliance insurance, where did they get their abortions? You know, what's the volume? And this is the breakdown. So 50% this is for the, the two years over the 2020-2022. Majority of people go to Planned Parenthood who have this insurance, you know, who are the low-income Medi-Cal folks in this county. Kaiser took care of 14%. Interestingly, San Francisco General took 10% take care of 10% of patients? You may be like, why that's far? Oh, really? Do you think it's low? I think it's low. I always tell you that. I don't know that one. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you in a second. PFAs, um, Family Planning Associates in Berkeley, 8%. They only do medication abortions, so they're really only taking care of folks in very early pregnancies. AHS is under 4%. Sutter is 1%. So really, Planned Parenthood is a power player in this, of providing most of the services. Okay. Um, if you don't mind going to the next one. And this is, accounts for 1,600 abortions per year. Um, San Francisco takes for some 10 patients. For me, that's sort of like a stab in the heart a little bit. Like, shouldn't they be coming here? We're a county system. Why are they not coming here? Why are they traveling so far? One is that we, our services haven't been very strong for a number of years. I think they're very hard to access. They're very hard to get through. And there's access has been such an issue that you have to wait like three to four weeks. You know, who is going to wait four weeks before they can get an abortion? It's so time sensitive. The pregnancy is advancing. Right. You're becoming less and less eligible for different services. Yeah. So people are smart to go somewhere else, or they have been. 
we're trying to change that. That's one my responsibility is to change that. But seeing that as like yeah. only 0.4% of folks. So that was my question. Okay. Is there a plan of expansion? Yeah, I will get there. I'll get there. Yeah, that's my pitch. That's my <laughs> getting there. So San Francisco, folks who are assigned to Alameda Alliance, only 0.4% live in San Francisco, which tells you that 10% of abortions are happening if people are traveling. My like second week here, I was providing prenatal care to this woman who um, I think worked for HS at some point, um, and was she was maybe like 12 or 13 weeks pregnant. She had really bad hypertension and was really worried. And she was like in her early 40s, really worried about how this pregnancy would go. And she just was like, you know, I've been feeling really ambivalent about having this baby. I worry about surviving this pregnancy, being there for my children. But I also, this is like my last baby I'm going to have, and I really want to have this baby. Talked a lot about it. We saw each other a number of times. And then at some point, she was like, you know, I heard, so I heard there's an abortion clinic here. She's like, since when does Highland do abortions? The Highland's been doing abortions since like the 70s. It's just not really a widely known service. She's like, oh, really? Because back in the day, like my friends and I all who live in this area would go to um, family planning specialists, which is a clinic that closed. It was in Jack London Square. They did majority of the abortions for this area and they closed in 2017, like right before the pandemic. And she's like, ever since they closed, you know, people had nowhere to go especially if someone wanted good sedation options, like good pain relief options. So I was like, so what have you and your friends been doing for the last like five years? She's like, what else is there to do? You just have your baby. You just have your child. You know, if you can't travel, San Francisco, she's like, San Francisco is really far away. It's really hard to get to San Francisco. And what happened was San Francisco General purchased the phone number of that clinic in um, in Oakland. Um, so any patient would call that clinic who knew it, because that was like a high volume, like high quality right, service, right, right. they would get routed to San Francisco General. So that's why they have the 10%. So we could do better. Like that made me feel like, wow, I really need to step up. And we need to improve for the quality to access everything here in people's, you know, people's community. They shouldn't have to travel so far. It's, it's, it's a big ask. And people can't travel, and so that we're forcing them to have children. They, Make welcome, you know, but it's a challenge and we'll yeah. them their lives in it. Yeah, so I'm thinking of a long term picture. If you really didn't want to have that child and then you're going through having to have that child, there's bigger mental issues, bigger <coughs> financial issues along the way. Um, where, you know, uh, social services will have to be involved at some point. Uh, it's so stressful, right? Yeah. If you knew you couldn't do it and you still have to do it, the amount of stress that it impacts, like it impacts your relationship. Or even a situation, you know, um, the various situation that occur with um, childbirth, you know, um, sexual predators and things like that, or you're forced into a situation where you may have to carry a child that you don't, yeah, really don't want yeah. because of the circumstances, you know. Mental health and where where the work is being done to collaborate, and I think that's what Mark was getting at as far as or or was it you, Timmy, that was saying about I think it was Mark as far as like what other services are collaborating, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. so important. Yeah, luckily in my experience, most folks have some degree of ambivalence and will ultimately make space in their lives for this baby, even though they know it's not the right whatever. They will make space. I know. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I've had a really crazy situation um, several times, but 
um, Kaiser back in the late 90s did a study because they wondered what happened if you were in this type of situation that it talks about. And I was actually in on the study. And I mean, you love your child, you, you get through it, uh, you, you take care of them. Um, a lot of times the women were found to be very resilient the kids were as well. So it wasn't as many problems as people thought. It was just, you know, like, so they followed me for years to try and figure out what, like, you know, what happened. And, you know, even with high stress pregnancies and, you know, the reproductive, um, the reproductive abuse, like what happened. So most women turned out okay. But they are financially constrained, just in the way they produced it. Everything they said is would happen if they had to have a child right now. It was true, right? Like yeah. they couldn't stay in their jobs. The childcare issues, their oh, yeah. financial constraints—they're real, and they predicted that to be a challenge. Yeah. And true, proved to be a challenge. People know their circumstances. I think when they're making those decisions, they know best. You know, and we have to honor them. And a lot of times, we just don't listen or don't provide the resources to let them follow through on what they want to do. Don't listen, that's a bigger problem. <laughs> yeah. We don't listen as a system. We haven't created ways to listen, you know, to respect people's choices. Uh, one more question. When you when you stated that, I made me think. So what happens to women um, that fall in between um, no medical? Like, um, because I remember a while ago it would be like Medi-Cal would cut off and sometimes right in the pregnancy, right? You find out you're pregnant, then Medi-Cal would cut you off. Are there now options that you can still terminate if you know medical, you can just walk in and get that help so that that, that reproductive justice is open to women that don't have any Insurance is really much more helpful. Yeah, so there's you could do presumptive eligibility, you could proceed, and you would want Medi-Cal pays for abortions. So some, actually some challenges are with some of the private insurers that yeah. don't cover, and people, it becomes really expensive. So the, the biggest challenges I've seen are those who are like have their anatomy ultrasound around 20 weeks and do find out that they have babies have problems, you know, where the woman has developed really severe complications and needs to end their pregnancy and they have private insurance. And no one looks at their benefits around abortion, right? Like it's just no one plans to have an abortion when they're not pregnant. And when they're pregnant, they're not, you know, like that's where they're first confronted with it. So those are the ones that sometimes have a huge financial burden. And I've had to transfer them to like another institution where their insurance was accepted or write letters for private insurance to cover it. So is that like, because um, I understand that Kaiser is a private hospital, but when you're Kaiser Medi-Cal, you have to sign your rights over. And so those, were, I guess those were kind of the patients I was referring to. So when you're Medi-Cal, but you're private insurance, is there anything for you if you'd like to continue with termination? I'm not sure how they're doing it now. So I know what family clinic specialist was in Oakland, Kaiser would refer their patients to that clinic to do the abortion and then just for that procedure that the patients would go back to Kaiser. Mm -hmm. So they would have like contracts to do that kind of care, but they wouldn't provide it in house, which is really messed up towards the patients. Like I'll take care of you for your pregnancy and birth, but if you choose this, I'll see you later, you know, you just come back. So there's a lot of just like really judgmental elements that come with us just in how we yeah. start shifting. And a lot of the hospitals St. Rose is the same way. They won't provide abortions. Yeah. Yeah. Catholic hospitals and stuff. Kaiser does provide abortions now, as you saw there. They put a large proportion of them compared to other institutions, and they do have doctors, you know, who are very skilled with that. So it's, I think, improved over the years, but historically it was definitely yeah. not. Okay. I guess I was just asking what happens if, if your Medi-Cal drops off. I know during the pandemic it was just like everything was fine, but now yeah. we're going back to, you know, that you have to sign this paper if we didn't get enough time, you know, you're cut off. Because I know a lot of women have had to have children because of Medi-Cal cut and they could not afford to go in. So I was wondering if there's anything in the net that we put in place now to catch those women with no um, 
no matter what. Well, there's health pack that could always kick in. Health pack is for um, homeless or anyone really that doesn't have any other insurance, doesn't qualify for Medi-Cal. I was on health pack for a while when I first became homeless. Very, 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 very beginning until I got on disability. And then once I was on disability, then I was eligible for Medi-Cal. But prior to that, I wasn't, see, so health pack is, is what I went to, yeah. There's a lot of complexities. I think here, like, financial accounts will step in and help people get the coverage that they need. I think it's better and more generous, but it's not an easy system to navigate. Like, no, the fact that we not. all don't know the details, like, who can we, then we expect others to figure it out. When they're pregnant again, it's really time sensitive. It's like a yeah. huge ask. That comes back onto your doctor, and your doctor would suggest that a support come in and talk to you, too, know about health pack, you know, to provide those different services. Right. It's so team-based, right? Yeah. Like no one can know all of it. Yeah. No, 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 no. Can I ask a question? I mean, this is sounding like out of left field, but let's be honest here. Unwanted pregnancies are created by more than one person, not the woman alone. And my suggestion is we have a program in which men who don't want to, uh, who don't want pregnant, pregnant partners or don't want to cause anyone to be pregnant, be able to get vasectomies if they so choose. I know that sounds silly. But you've got a lot of men out there, and let that me tell you, nice. especially African-American men, I'm afraid to say, one of their problems is they just refuse to wear a raincoat. They don't want to wear a raincoat, and won't wear a raincoat, no matter who tells them to wear a raincoat, they right. won't wear a raincoat. Right. But also, when, you, when you're suggesting that, I know that um, a lot of the population refuses to get a vasectomy. They're like, this is a little bit of manhood. Right, right, right. So they're, they're like, what? this is a little bit of manhood that they can hold on to. And I know a lot of people that just like that, they should get a vasectomy. Right. So they stop leaving kids here, there, and everywhere. And I think they're a man, one of them. They're correct. But, Okay, I'm going to okay, just uh, also help to keep us on track for our meeting time. Yeah, oh, I've got a couple more slides. Yeah, I'm sorry, I appreciate that. You're okay. absolutely right. It should be part of the strategy. And the way to support everyone, like men also don't want to have children they don't want, right? Like, I mean, right. it's, it's a, it's a, they're not included in these conversations a lot of the time. And this is some of the research and work I've done is also to incorporate partners into the abortion process if it's safe to do so. Like the pregnant person wants their partner to be part of it. They should witness the experience and provide the support. A lot of times clinics out of safety concerns will only see the, like, the patient and exclude the partners. A lot of partners want to be there. They want to show up. You know, and so a lot of times we don't incorporate them and integrate them in the process. So it's foreign to me. They have no idea what happens. Even in prenatal care, right, there's a big move to incorporate partners. A lot of partners don't show up. Hey, before it's, we move to the subject, though, I just have one question. I just want to actually, um, I want to corroborate, medically corroborate something. I heard what you said about the manhood issue, but if I understand from all I've researched on the issue about men having vasectomies and, and, and what vasectomies are, the very fact of the matter, that does not uh, take away from... Mark, I think that's a little bit off topic. Mark, I think that's a bit off topic. Um, so I don't think we need to oh. answer that question. Yeah, I think it's a little bit beyond the scope of this presentation. Oh, 
I'm sorry. Nope, you're okay. Thank you. Correct. But I will, I will jump back in here. Um, just this is to your point uh, about just what, what are we doing? How can we expand and make our services more accessible? And I think the focus here is that I said, like, who do we really open our doors to? Since there are plenty of other providers in the East Bay and Alameda County that are doing a good job, like what, where does AHS step in? And I really think it's around hospital-based services where we can provide people really good pain options because we're inside the hospital, we have access to anesthesiologists, we have nurses that can provide pain medication through the IV. It's how to get the most medically complex folks who have the least resources, who can't, aren't eligible to get care like Planned Parenthood to welcome them here and help them get here and then connect them with resources should they need them afterwards. A lot of folks say like, I went to, had my abortion and I really needed support afterwards. Not that they had, the abortion caused depression. They were already depressed. They're already in a bad place. They're already using you know substances. They needed support. It's just giving this opportunity to provide comprehensive care. And I think HS is going to do that. I don't think we're going to be a high volume provider. We're not going to be a high volume provider for medication abortions in the first trimester. We don't need to do that. There's a lot of other clinics that do that. Right. But the thing that they can't do well because they don't have access to anesthesiologists, they don't have access to social workers, case managers, bridge program, all these other amazing services right. that we provide. It's just that, you know. So it's how to you know, really reach out to those folks and bring them in and provide them really high quality care, break down some of the stigmas, take away a lot of the judgment, make them feel respected you know, that we honor their decisions and that we want to take care of them. And they're going to come back to us, right? That they're going to be our patients and we can really take care of them for years to come because we're a comprehensive system. It's not just that we provide one service. So this is what I've been trying to do here, um, really kind of where we're at now to a way to elevate the services that we provide. Um, there's a lot of hurdles. Um, a lot of them are just historical. Uh, they are what they are, you know, poor access, asking people to come in like five, six different times before they can have an abortion. Too many visits that are really spread apart, a lot of unnecessary requirements, um, trying to do away with that. Um, so that's, that's been a big focus of my work for the last year. And also just give people more entry points and improve our social services to help people with transportation. That's one of the biggest things that people have encountered is that they, they can't come for their procedures because they don't have rides. Um, so that we, really been tapping into the resources we have at HS to get people there and to get them rights back home after their procedures. And this is just more things that we really could leverage as our system is that we have a large skilled provider team. We have, you know, we have advanced practice clinicians, midwives, doctors, nurses, medical assistants, social workers, way more than most freestanding clinics have. We have a very large workforce of people that could be skilled in this. We have pain management options, we have continuity of care, so we can see patients over the course of their lives. It doesn't just have to be for that one specific service, but it can be certainly that's what they prefer. Right. I have a question. Yeah. Um, the, the idea of midwives. Yeah. Is that, I believe there was some time, some time years ago, there was an institution whose name um, I don't know, uh, was, um, was specifically training midwives uh, and I'm just wondering if any such institution still uh, exists and are midwives um, uh, less prevalent than before because it seems like they are. Less prevalent? I don't know. I'm not sure. I feel like there's a lot of midwives, but I don't know what the trend is over time. So is um, doula the same thing as a Different, but Different. also part of the team. So doulas yeah. are birth coaches and they could be abortion coaches. They're really the support person for like physical support, emotional support as the person's going through the bodily discomforts. 
Whereas the midwife is the, is the birth attendant. They're the ones who are you know, helping with the deliveries. They're really skilled. Maybe some will say more skilled than, than obstetricians. We're better at the surgical side of things to do the cesareans. They're maybe better at attending births um, for folks who don't have you know, any risk to medical problems they're ideal for. I don't know if there's a specific institution that trains midwives to answer your question. UCSF has been amazing. They have a large program. So a lot of people, a lot of the midwives in the Bay Area almost all trained at UCSF. So they really kind of, they have a large UCSF, class of graduates. UCLA also, UCLA. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, so I think it's, it seems to be on the rise, but I don't have the historical perspective. I know there's a time where there's a lot of midwives and doctors kind of push them out of birth. And I think there's this emergence again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, and it, we, we are also very lucky to have the support of the C-suite, we have the support of the Board of Trustees to really expand and advance abortion care here, you know, plus it helps to be in a sanctuary city in a sanctuary state where this is valued and supported because the biggest problem that I've had, the biggest hurdle for myself in any institution is just institutional support. It just takes one person to say, you know, abortion is a bad thing and then all doors close. Um, so it's been incredible to have that kind of interest and support and people willing to hear me out to see like kind of the comprehensiveness about 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 abortion, how it's not at all about abortion, it's just integrating into what we already do to give people um, ways to meet all their needs. Thank you, Anna. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me and hearing me out, your amazing questions and engagement. Always grateful for that. Okay, so we're going to change direction here a little bit. Um, we have John. Hi, John. Good evening. Welcome back. Thank you. Okay. Um, the floor is yours. <laughs> thank you. No, I don't think I can uh, follow up on that satisfactorily, but I will provide what I have. Um, so I am uh, John Minot, and I am Director of Program Planning and Finance at Alameda Health System. Um, thank you for giving me time tonight. Um, I'm here to report to you on uh, some work that my department, uh, Population Health, uh, has been working on for several months and about where it is right now. Um, it is not uh, limited to... Um, uh, uh, to the CAB scope, but CAB is really uh, critical to it. Um, so we want to be care careful to um, keep you as much as possible. Um, and this is the FQHC, Federally Qualified Health Center, Alternative Payment Methodology Pilot. Can we go to the next slide, please? So I presented on this last year, and this is a slide from then. Um, but uh, for those who weren't there or need a refresher, this APM program, there have been, there are other things, many things really called APMs. Uh, but what we're talking about tonight is a state initiative to transform how our clinics, which is our four ambulatory care clinics, uh, are paid for services in Medi-Cal. Right now, it is most often um, fundamentally on a per visit basis. Um, you know, some some places call it ringing the bell. Uh, it's it comes down to state and federal law that FQHCs, due to their safety net status, are guaranteed a rate called a PPS rate uh, based on their costs for every patient, every Medi-Cal patient they see. 
which of course is uh, a lot more generous than Medi-Cal usually gets. Um, however, that does create incentives, uh, especially for places that are really looking at the money um, to, uh, um, to really try to get patients in and through as fast as possible to promote visits over value. Alternative payment methodology envisions uh, paying per patient assigned to the clinic so that for everyone under your regular care, month by month, whether they're coming in or not, you are getting a small monthly payment. There's a lot more to it, but that's the uh, short story. The state has been working toward this with a start date of January 2024, but entirely on a voluntary basis. Uh, clinics uh, need to apply for it, and they go through a lot of readiness assessments, and only those that are selected can have the start date of 2024. After that, it's rolling going forward. Others might start 2025, 2026, and so forth. Um, the program has a lot of quality metrics because obviously the, well, not obviously, but historically and experientially, what happens uh, if all you do is pay per month without making any other safeguards is that there can be the opposite incentive to reduce care rather than to increase it. And that can also be inappropriate. So there are a lot of quality metrics the state came up with, uh, which mostly relate to adequacy of ambulatory care uh, so access, um, screenings, a range of things, most of which we're already uh, tracking uh, through QIP and other programs. Um, but that making those quality metrics and improving on them over time is part of the program. The state did, um, since we last talked, finalize the quality metrics, mostly on the same lines that were previously talked about. They have a... Uh, uh, gate and ladder approach where you have to meet minimum performance on some and improve on others. Um, as we were looking, uh, we were assessing the program and, and working on uh, a collective decision on whether we would recommend um, moving forward. Uh, and if we had wanted to move forward in 2024, we would have had to apply by January 2023. Um, we ended up deciding that uh, it was not, although we did submit a letter of interest to get our, get out there in front of the state and start at least talking about it, that was a non-binding letter of interest. Um, and when it came time to submit the actual application, uh, we decided we would, were uh, not prepared to move forward with the 2024 start date. Uh, there was too much involved. Um, but then something happened in January that we were not expecting which is the state out of the blue sent its own analysis because when you're paid by the month, you need to be very, you need to be very sure that you have uh, all your data, especially your service data being submitted well. And so they said, made an analysis based on only data available to them, the state, on how consistent our FQHC claims data was when looking at different ways, they get the same information. And they call that the match rate because it's looking at one source and another source, which are the same underlying services and seeing, do they match? If they don't, then you you may not be ready or they decided you're probably not ready uh, for moving to APM. And uh, there is some 
uh, value in this also because if they don't match, there's a, uh, for reasons I won't go too deeply into, there's a strong chance that APM is actually going to under reimburse you because of how it changes the reimbursement process. And they found that most of the clinics that were interested that had submitted letters of intent had a very low match rate, uh, which was disheartening. And AHS was one of them. AHS match rate well below 50%. I think it might've been around, uh, I should have it in front of me, but um, it was pretty low. Uh, we had reason to believe that some of it was an artifact, that uh, a little bit of cleaning uh, would bring it up a lot. But they wanted uh, places to be ready from the get-go, and therefore they said politely that uh, we were among the many that they would not consider to start 2024. Um, this also applied to most clinics in Alameda County, um, including some that had been very uh, uh, gung-ho about it, uh, very excited about the potential. Um, so there are only a few, maybe only a couple community clinics outside of AHS countywide uh, that are likely to move forward in 2024. Okay. Um, I have a question. Yes. <laughs> oh, questions. Go ahead. Anybody go ahead. Um, John, can you refresh my memory again? What is the value of going to this new program? Yes, thank you. I was thinking I had under under given that part. Yes, and, and then and also um, in addition, if you are getting paid monthly based on your your patient enrollment or whatever, do you have to see that patient every month? No, certainly not. Uh, you get paid based on the patient still being assigned. So yeah, so the benefit. Um, that's a very important question. So it is not so much a revenue opportunity. Um, the idea is that you take the money that the FQHC was being paid previously and simply spread it over a different num over a number of months where previously it was a payment per visit and it should result in roughly the same amount of money. Um, the benefit is really not so much financial, although there is in some scenarios there's a financial gain. Uh, as it is about the opportunity to overhaul um, your care model and your way of your way of uh, seeing patients, because under FQHC, uh, if you get if your visits go down, the whole enterprise suffers. But if you're paid per patient per month, then you can start treating people in whatever media, whatever setting makes the most sense. Whether or not it would be reimbursable under the FQHC rules, whether or not it's a billable provider, and you still get paid the same amount. So it allows for a rethinking of what is the most appropriate place for people? Where can you best meet people? How can you uh, keep them healthy over time? It, allow, it allows you to look at that uh, without the revenue risk setting in if you do it too well. Uh, I see. Yeah. Um, and honestly, even that revenue side is so, um, from, from uh, as I've been talking to the committee and learning more about it, even that is probably not the majority of it. Uh, the places that were really moving uh, quickly and uh, wholehearted, uh, sort of fully toward it, 
we're seeing it as a care mo- a care model revamp that uh, was not necessarily dependent on the re- on the revenue change at all. That it is a way to move forward. It is a way to uh, it is a framework in which you can put your a care model revamp. Um, but it is a lot more than that. It includes thinking about care teams. Uh, you know what what does everyone do? Uh, in the clinic, how is everyone performing to the top of their license? What is the um, what is the most uh, effective and kind way to have your care work? Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. And, and so that would include that could include um, televisits and all of this, correct? Uh, originally, yes, and still yes, but not quite in the same way, because telehealth uh, was one of the great successes of the pandemic, and it has now right. been, in most, uh, for most purposes, some caveats, but for most purposes, it has been continued uh, permanently. So a televisit is now a visit, and it will continue to be whether or not we do APM. Before, one of the big things people were saying was, well, with an APM, you can do televisits. Well, now we can do televisits either way. So mm-hmm. that's a little that's a little aside now. Yeah. But obviously, that's still a part of it. Okay. Richard, you had a question down there. Yes. Um, you stated that basically our match rate is low. So what work is being done to um, increase the, the number of match rate and uh, what would be a projected timeline to be on point with the data? Um, I don't think I can promise a particular uh, timeline for that at the moment. I can tell you that this match rate is not one that affects reimbursement at the moment. It's affect the match rate where, you know, the place where the data falls short is a place where it does not affect revenue, uh, but it would affect revenue if we moved to APM potentially. Um, so, uh, my, uh, I, and, uh, my analyst are working on that and we have recently received more data from Alameda Alliance, uh, which will help us diagnose the issues. Uh, we're still not sure entirely what all the different reasons are. Um, we know that this is an issue statewide and there are going to be more learnings from other participants, uh, as time goes on. Um, I'm hoping we have some more answers in maybe four to six months, uh, but I'm not sure. Are you looking at the ones that have been approved to see what they're doing right? Yes, uh, we have not yet uh, spoken with them on this particular issue, but we have uh, gleaned from, we have had some uh, many conversations really uh, and presentations from other clinics in the area and um, that are that have been working on this, as well as other public systems uh, in the region, like San Mateo Medical Center, uh, that are interested in it too. So yes, a lot of a lot of venues uh, for mutual learning. I have a question. Yeah. Given the fact that we now know that that um, in adopting this, um, that uh, the reimbursement of clinic uh, or the key match rate is um, generally is low. And it's also low for AHS. I'm just curious, um, why why then would um, anyone um, at this point in time, uh, until given more data, 
uh, would actually, uh, these few community clinic participants that are now participating in this, uh, why did they adopt it? Um, uh, why, would they, why, why would you adopt it if more than likely, or if you were able to look over, say, a, a spreadsheet of matching uh, what is charged at every clinic for whatever services, and that you were to look at the match rate for your particular clinic in your in your particular county, uh, that it shows that the match rate match rate is going to be low. There's no reason for you to adopt this uh, to adopt this um, uh, this particular process. Um, so it it looks like to me, uh, arguably that that it was a blessing that uh, we didn't we weren't able to move forward uh, because our ducks weren't all a row in January or we didn't submit in January, which sounds like that based on what you said, sounds like maybe that was a good thing. That aside, um, given the ones, uh, the, the community clinics that are participating, um, are they obligated in, under any rules um, to report the results of their of the process of what's going on once they've adopted this process. I don't know that there are. Okay. So to the first thing you said, uh, one of the criteria of the committee has always been, uh, are we confident that it will, uh, that it will not hurt us financially. So I think that we were on the path it, uh, to discovering on our own that the match of the match rate problem, uh, but the state did bring it to our attention faster. Um, uh, yeah, and the, the clinics that are moving forward are the ones that had a high match rate and therefore can expect it to make sense, yeah, even if they implement next January. Um, oh, okay. Okay. I just wondered so, about that. Yeah, so all the ones, yes. everyone, with, everyone with a low match rate, even if it might be fixable in the near term, has been ruled out by the state. Did right. they match because of, um, like, the electronic health record? It, it, was that, or... Uh, I, I guess what I'm really asking them. is, what are we doing that's so wrong? You As know? I said, uh, a, a whole lot of participants in the sa safety net overall uh, had a low match rate, so I don't know that we're unique. Right. No, I, I know. I understand that. I'm just, I'm just curious what, where is something's falling short somewhere for everyone, it sounds like, except a select few. Yes. Is there anybody, I mean, is anybody studying uh, what yes. the difference is or what, what what the causation of the difference is? Yes, my department is. Uh, okay. Um, and is there, um, is um, the window to adopt this, is this um, wide open for us to adopt at any given time? Um, there is one window. Since we, since we did adopt it in January? There is one window a year. So if everything happened as fast as possible uh, and we want it, then our next opportunity would be to start in January 2025. And for that, we would need to apply in January 2024 and have a f final opportunity to pull out by mid if thing if something went wrong by uh, mid 2024. Oh, okay. So the state's going to be paying two different ways coming 2024 then, correct? Uh, yes. Oh, yes. Wow. It's more work for them, huh? <laughs> Assuming they haven't went out, went out, out all the participants by then. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Wow. 
So we had a committee um, which included, uh, we tried to include as many departments as possible. Um, we, uh, alongside reporting to the CAB, um, which included um, Damon, Heather, um, re uh, reimbursement, revenue cycle, um, and a, a number of others, and, and as I said, population health uh, and qual uh, quality. And um, so we were working on how do we how do we move toward figuring out if this works and how how we make it work and how it works with uh, everything else we're trying to do. Um, we did confirm that the quality metrics as finalized were, were the direction we wanted to be striving. And we did a number of interviews of different participants. I think I've touched on that. Um, the big thing to, uh, uh, to update you on is that in the process, we found our, you know, we had ambulatory care, uh, Portia and Terrence, um, uh, firmly in the loop. Um, and in the end, we kind of found um, that the implications of APM um, were, so, were so much more than the reimbursement that ambulatory care leadership uh, determined that they need time to identify the overall direction that they are taking for, for potential care redesigns, that you know, the APM committee was not really the venue to make those very big decisions. There's, there's a wider, um, wider way those decisions will be made. And once we know what direction uh, is going on, is it what direction is going for care design or redesign, then it will be a more appropriate time to figure out is APM consistent with that? Will APM help drive that forward or is it a distraction? As a result, we did make the collective decision to put the committee's work on hold. So we have not been having meetings for the past couple of months. Uh, just within population health, we are continuing to monitor uh, and to analyze the data mismatch, as I said. Um, but that is where there is that is where we are right now. Uh, we are, uh, yeah. The, to, the committee, if it restarts, will be with the queue of ambulatory care. A uh, question: Is population health um, actually a site? Is there? Do they have a site in which? Uh, would be accessible to me to look at their progress of monitoring this? A website? Or, yeah. Uh, no, not at the moment. This is how we've been communicating our uh, progress. Okay. Any other questions? Just again, uh, you probably said it already, but um, the, the committee that's not meeting right now will probably meet when there's when um, there's more information available. Uh, probably. Okay. It could take a different form. Okay. Yeah. So no question. So if, if um, let's make sure I understand this correct. If ambulatory agrees and it's going to fit in their plan, then all departments will go on this. Is that correct? Oh, um, that was something I did not uh, clarify. Um, it would be very possible and probably advisable, even if we move forward with it, to do it a clinic at a time. Uh, oh, okay. okay. Uh, we are formally four clinics in licensure. Right. Uh, and the state allows uh, 
allows allows the participation of just one clinic uh, or to cl to participate or not participate. It does not have to be system wide. Oh, okay. So we could start at clinics that have more readiness. If uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, and we were definitely talking about that and how that decision might be made, the criteria. Uh, right. I, I can't imagine. I think the least likely place for year one would have been Highland. Uh, the others we were thinking about because the, the interaction with specialty is complicated. Or it's, yeah. it's yet yeah. another complication. Sure. So. Okay. Any other questions, guys? No. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you so much. I always find it interesting when you come. Love it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Okay, so we now um, are on item G. We have uh, Tomashia Booker, who is going to be speaking on Cardia Health pilot program at Eddie's Place. Welcome, welcome. Hi, good evening, everyone. Hi. Good evening. Glad to have you. Yes, thank you. My name is Tamisha Booker, and I am a director of outpatient services and care management. So my departments are house and care management, and I oversee um, a couple departments uh, within AHS. Um, one of them is our post-discharge placement. So I um, have been involved in our Cardia Health pilot program. And so uh, this is a pilot program that started on May 1st. Um, and Eddie's Place is the actual location. Cardia Health is the business. And Cardia Health, um, is in connection with Eddie's place is a, you can go to the next slide, is a medically supported uh, shelter. And it's in Alameda County and it has, we are leasing 20 beds and these are for individuals who are unhoused and are discharging um, from the hospital and being able to connect to housing. Some of the barriers that we were seeing that led to uh, this pilot and implementation of this program is that there were delayed admissions um, and treatment of other patients who required acute care services. Um, we had inpatient um, patients who were medically ready for discharge but remained in our hospital, which delayed the transition to the next appropriate level of care. Um, a large volume of patients who were waiting for a timely discharge and that could exceeded the capacity of uh, the current panel of short-term residential care facilities that we're under contract with. A lot of these facilities operate in a group setting. So um, if patients required isolation, um, that was also impeding on their ability to be accepted. Um, also patients um, who were placed in facilities we're experiencing longer than average stays, um, resulting in a substantial cost to the hospital, and also just all around trying to uh, increase resources for our unhoused uh, patients. Go to the next slide. So the pilot project began on May 1st, so I am providing an update on how things are going. Um, this is sort of a 
a high level overview of what we've been doing since implementation. So back in April, we met with Cardia Health to discuss the implementation, kind of go through the workflow, get an understanding about how we're going to process referrals, get that information out to staff, um, as well as leaders, and just clearly define um, what our scope is. And then May, we prepared ourselves for that pilot and launch, and we, we were able to meet the um, target start date at um, on May 1st. And it's gone really well. Next slide. Um, I'm going to share with you sort of our first uh, month uh, review that we had. So it's been a little bit over a month. As I said, we have 20 beds and we have been able to um, maximize the census several times. The census will go up and down depending on the needs of the patients. For example, if a patient is discharging from the emergency room, they can stay at Eddie's place for seven days. And if they're coming from the inpatient side, they can stay for up to 30 days. And what Eddie's place will do is they will identify a permanent uh, housing location as well as case management services to support our patients. After so, the 30 days, right? Yes, after the 30 days or within the seven days if they're coming from. Within the seven days, yeah. Uh-huh, yep. And um, they're also partnering with some of our existing uh, vendors. You know, we have contracts with some of the respite facilities um, in Alameda County, and they are actually helping to be a part of our continuum of care. So if we discharge a, place, a patient into Eddie's place, they will also reconnect with some of our existing vendors to um, get them in the right place. Um, so for the first month of operation, um, Eddie's Place, we referred 61 referrals. And so out of the 61 patients that were referred, um, 31 came from Highland, 17 from San Leandro, 4 from Fairmont, 7 from Alameda, and 2 from the acute rehab. Um, and of the 61, only four came from the emergency department. Um, so that means a lot of the patients were staying there for a longer period of time. Um, and needed uh, more time to recuperate and get those services. Um, and then 37 of the 61 referrals that were made were accepted into care at Eddie's place. Um, and 31 of the 37 referrals accepted to Eddie's place were admitted. There were six that were declined um, due to um, just the declined admission and the replace in alternative settings. Sometimes we find that patients don't quite meet the criteria. All right. So in terms of the overall just demographics, that's this next slide here. Um, of the 31 patients that were admitted to Eddie's Place, 14 were Black or African-American, nine identified as Hispanic or Latino, and six identified as white Caucasian, 25 males and six females. All right, then go to the next slide. Just overall opportunities for growth. So we do have a meeting with uh, Cardia Health on a weekly basis to review the pilot, to see how things are going, to see how we can make changes to this implementation. Um, Eddie's Place will likely reach full capacity uh, this month, and we already began discussion for our process of a wait list. So once the census is at 15, we will start to get that wait list going. There, therefore, there'll be no delays when we're preparing to admit additional um, patients. Um, also, 
additional impact is that, you know, Eddie's Place has really been able to do some um, really amazing things to support our patients. Um, they accepted clients who would have otherwise had an indefinite hospital stay um, for clients. So um, if we do the math on that, it was definitely already a huge cost savings. Um, there because we know that each night in a ho- in the hospital um, is rather expensive. They've also been able to accept patients who are on hospice. You know, a patient with a dopamine drip who, um, well, he will remain through the end of his life. Um, they connected four clients with opioid use disorder with outpatient medically assisted treatment, um, and they've just been able to successfully provide safe and supportive shelter to our most vulnerable patients at AHS. So. We are really excited about this partnership and really excited about how things are going so far. I have a question. Sure. Um, so how, at what point do the, your patients at Eddie's Place um, go to say oak days? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it really depends on what's happening medically. So once um, we at HS, when we discharge a patient to Eddie's Place, um, they're doing an assessment and determining what the needs are. So mm-hmm. if it's inpatient at seven days and outpatient's 30 days, that's the max. And so if they don't need any additional medical care or support, if they don't need any additional time to convalesce, then they're going to identify a long-term housing option. Sometimes that can be a barrier and extend the stay because sometimes a patient doesn't have you know, funds, whatever barriers are presented at that time to identify long-term housing that can also extend. So really at any point during the seven or 30 day timeline. Okay. Um, but if they need to go into hospice care, you, you don't do that, correct? Um, so I work for AHS. Um, and I mean, I mean, Eddie's place does it. Oh, okay. Um, no, they don't provide hospice, but they can help a patient who needs to go to hospice that they need at that time. Yes. Mm-hmm. I um, I have one concern um, about this, and um, you know, I I myself, having been a professional and currently ongoing professional patient, one of the things that really bothers me about hospitals is that um, they tend to, um, in some cases, they tend to release people uh, prematurely shortly after um, surgery that's uh, even considered routine surgery, um, they release patients too early. Um, and that's that's me with a, with a roof over my head, okay? What about the people who don't have a roof over their head possibly getting um, sent to your place, which at the current rate um, maybe only is limited to seven days. Uh, and then when you add and combine the fact that a hospital may eject a patient simply because it's is not medically prudent, but it's financially prudent to let a person go. Uh, I got problems with that. What do you say to that? What do you say to that? Yeah, I definitely think that's a concern. I don't see that that's happening here. Um, This is part of a continuum of care. So what's happening is within AHS, whenever we have a patient who is unhoused or um, needs um, any type of services, this is one option for that patient to be discharged. And in the exact example that you gave, you know, a patient who is unhoused and does need some more time to rest and recuperate, Eddie's Place is one option for them. And then Eddie's Place is going to support them and then get them to wherever they need to go next. 
So really the idea here is that we're not, um, you know, forcing anyone out too soon, that we're, we are allowing plenty of time for our patients to get the rest and recovery that they need. Okay. And, and one other quick question about the person who um, you've accepted as a hospital client, dubutamine drip, where he will remain. Um, so that person now currently occupies the bed at the current facility that you now operate. Um, I think we can, Mark, I think that's a little too specific to particular patient. We can talk about them in hypotheticals, and but I don't think that it's appropriate for us to go as to whether or not they currently are at Eddie's place. Okay, what I'm trying to establish is to find out whether or not this person occupied is currently occupying a bed at the facility. That's, that, that's all I'm trying to establish. Right, and I'm saying that's a little too patient specific. And I wouldn't have that information either. This is a, you know, based on a program report, just sort of letting you know some of the things that we've been able to do to support patients. Let me go about this a different way. I'm only simply asked that question because I'm just wondering, um, because of limited bed space currently, um, what do you do with, uh, or how will you proceed in the future for possible patients that will need longer term care? Mm-hmm. Well, if we're looking at this patient in particular, again, I don't know this specific patient, but I think what's key here is the patient is hospice, so it's it's not going to be a, a super long term. Um, and if a patient needs to take longer in one of the beds, um, the idea here is not to remove them too soon, but especially a patient on hospice, if, if that's where they need to be to spend the, the end of their, their life, then that's what we'll do. Um, and then if there's somewhere else that they need to go from there, then we'll connect them. But it's very possible that patients who um, are receiving hospice will occupy a bed for um, the rest of their life. But we predict that that would be short term, which is why they would be appropriate for this service. Remember, this is a pilot, um, Mark. So if you look back at their program plan, so it started in May. This is the first month that the program has been operating oh, in okay. collaboration with Alameda Health System. And you'll see that in um, in August, they're going to review the three-month data. And I would imagine, Tamisha, at this point, too, uh, Alameda Health System would be looking at does it need to expand or not, or is this meeting the need? And so remember, this is just our first, the first month. Just about sorry. 30 days, but your point is well taken. Um, as Heather said, at the three month mark, we would be able to evaluate examples that you just gave. If a patient, we have a, a number of patients who are using beds that we need to be turning over more quickly. We can relook at criteria and overall workflow. My last question. May- uh, how many current staff persons do you have now operating the program, the pilot program? Um, so this is a pilot program is system wide at, at AHS. So I can't tell you specifically like how many staff are in the ED, you know, the inpatient units at oh, okay. AHS, but it is throughout throughout the system. Um, um, Lucy, you have your hand up. Thanks for joining Hi. us today. Yeah, of course. I just wanted to add a little bit of context that I think might be helpful, if that's okay, to Eddie's place. Um, Which I I think, Mark, might be what you were trying to ask. So the site itself actually has 50 units, of which 
um, 20, right, as, as was reviewed here, right, 20 are with AHS. And I, I think that part of what Tamisha was speaking to, so there, so additional beds there actually are for respite, the same as at Fairmont or Adeline or the other respite mm, facilities okay. in the county. So part of that assessment that they're doing, you know, as she said, at seven days, at 30 days is if somebody needs longer term care, which may be a hospice, hospice patient, which may be somebody who during that 30 days, another diagnosis, you know, there, there, there are plenty of reasons. So that's the piece that I think in this, that's one of the beauties of this site, right, is during that seven or 30 day assessment period, um, they the, there's potential for them to either if you know if they're eligible switch into respite at that site right into one of the other 30 units at that site and switch into respite or as tamisha said it might be that another respite site is best for them and then they would coordinate getting them to that site so just in terms of like this right that this the the work with um this great pilot that's going with AHS now really is it, it's it's kind of a precursor almost in some way to respite, right? It allows that evaluation time to see does somebody need to stay longer, in which case that's part of the work is leveraging and, you know, uh, access to longer term res uh, respite and it may be hospice. Mm -hmm. yep. Any well, thanks, level of care. Thanks so much for that clarification. Thanks for that answer. And I've heard fabulous things about Eddie's place so far. I just want you to know that really, really positive things. Um, I am curious, um, what makes the 20 beds that we quote unquote are in charge of, what makes that part of the program different from the other beds? What are we doing that maybe are, is not being done for the other 30 patients? Um, so I think what for us, the 20 beds are always available. You know, we are managing that census. So that's the difference there. And Eddie's Place has connections or Korea Health has connections with a lot of variety of housing options. So they're able to connect patients with whatever level of care that they need. So our 20 just belong to us. They're for AHS patients. We're managing that system that census if they are going over the seven or 30 days we're talking about a plan and really discussing the care for those specific particular patients and i think it's just continuity as well they're connected with us um you know we're speaking to them on a regular basis so we're really able to support the needs of those patients so where do the other 30 patients come from are they alameda health system patients or are they coming from different Oh, all over the county. Like Sutter or whatever, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. oh, yes. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Any questions? That's it. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Appreciate evening. hearing from Love you. you. Okay, and last but not least is. Um, Heather, she has a program report. Thanks for, us. for your favorite monthly program reports. <laughs> um, so we have a few um, bits to mention about our health pro uh, health compliance and program requirements in the top part, and it's all around the budget. You know, it's budget yeah. season here at Alameda Health System, and so the Alameda Health System wide budget um, was presented to the Board of Trustees Finance Committee uh, just last week on the seventh. Um, you can find those documents online um, at Alameda Health System. Um, so if you wanted to review them, you could. 
Um, the budget is expected to go in front of the Board of Trustees Committee tomorrow. So as well, if you wanted to um, listen to their Board of Trustees meeting or if you wanted to make comments at their meeting about the budget, tomorrow would be your opportunity to do so during their regular meeting. This is the time when that budget would be um, approved. So our budget? The Alameda Health System budget. As a whole. Okay. Alameda Health System. Right. So you're differentiating, which is great. The idea that the Homeless Health Center has a budget that you all will need to approve and that Alameda Health System as a whole has a budget that they approve. And generally, the Homeless Health Center budget is a part of the right. Alameda Health System budget. Um, the budget that's presented at the Board of Trustees doesn't uh, single out the oh. Homeless Health Center budget or name what's in the Homeless Health Center budget as a specific entity. Um, the entities that they have within the, that we've seen presented to us, you know, they have the FQHC entity. Um, however, even in this budget um, set up the way it's being presented to the board, I don't think that they have those. And I'm just saying, I don't think that they do. I did go to the Board of Trustees Finance Committee meeting. Um, there's a lot of information yeah. and it's a very large budget there. But my impression was that the entities aren't represented in the big budget, like um, yeah. the way that we see sometimes in the finance reports that come out um, more monthly or quarterly to us. So when the Board of Trustees see that budget, they won't see FQHC as an entity and what their specific budget is. What they'll see is this is the Alameda Health System budget and they're requesting that it be approved. And then at a future date, we would get the specifics of the Homeless Health Center budget, which would be a portion of mm -hmm. that larger budget for you to approve. And we expect that that could happen as early as the July CAB meeting. And it may not. So this is where, again, yes, okay. we've got our caveats. Um, you'll notice that I have it on the agenda. It's projected to be on your July agenda. Um, however, there are still some challenges. I know that we looked at a budget recently and you were identifying some areas that um, needed some um, questions answered. For example, the fact that the Homeless Health Center budget doesn't balance, right? So that there was, that it was a deficit and that we're budgeting for a deficit and how does that work? Right. And then remember there were also those allocations and those allocations aren't being made specifically to the Homeless Health Center and they're being to the bottom line of the Alameda Health System budget. And so again, yeah. that, causes challenges for approving a budget when you know that it's not, We're not seeing the money directly to um, us. Well, you, it's, yeah, it's hard it's, to see. It's hard to see. And so we've, we've had discussions about that at previous coordinated. Um, and so we're working with the finance team to get those things clarified and to have the budget be more transparent That's for fair. our use so that you can um, approve a budget and you know where the funds are coming from, right. and you know, then I give you some ability to uh, be strategic and make plans about what additional things you want to see that you've expressed before, like more drop-in services, et cetera. So this, again, there's been a lot of progress. We've made a lot of progress on, on our ability to look at finances for the Homeless Health Center specifically um, over the past several years with the support of our finance team. Um, and I would say we're almost there and we're not quite there yet, but we do have hope that in the July meeting, there will be something. And again, at that point, 
you as a cab get to decide to pass or not pass a budget that's presented to you. So that's just a reminder that that's also an option that if those questions are answered and you're not seeing what you need to see through that, then you can decline to pass it. So you have the authority to do that. Sometimes it's not always a yes. Yeah, yeah. And number four, um, um, they're requesting that um, we return the form. What form? So um, to? every year, so every year, thanks for moving me ahead, Mark. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Four, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't mean to do that. No, you're good. You're good. I want to move us ahead, too. So um, as part of the annual uh, forms that a person needs is something called the BPR, the Budget Period Review. Um, it's it had different names, but it's always the BPR. And it's something that Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program has to submit for the whole health, homeless health center. So remember, Alameda Health System Homeless Health Center is a part of the bigger Alameda County Homeless Health Center. The county holds the grant with HRSA, and so the county is required to submit documents and evidence that we are doing the work here in Alameda County, and it includes this thing called the BPR, which is the Budget Period Review, um, and it, it is a calendar year budget it essentially would say, this is our plan for calendar year 2024. And usually about this time of year is when we submit it to them. And this is when I get to tell you, this is what they've requested. And this is something that we can't meet. And so we are talking, I've sent a request to extend. I've also sent requests to our people here at finance. And the reason we can't meet it is for the same reason we couldn't really meet it last year. Um, again, because of those allocations that aren't defined for our yeah. system and discussions on how to allocate those for this form. And the idea that technically this form would usually be based on uh, an approved budget and you don't have an approved budget. So it's also hard to create and form a form without an approved budget even but if we'd had the tools that we would have expected for our budget we may have been able to complete this form but we're still feeling like we don't have all those tools because we don't have clarification on those allocations and those were problematic last year and there's no change to that between last year and this year yet and we can't really approve the budget to get that we could but i i that was so we wouldn't know well, we, we would like some clarification on that. Yes. Yeah. Because we were out right now. I don't want to go through another year like that. Yeah. No, we can't do another year uh -uh. like that. So this is why I'm reporting <laughs> to you these things that are coming up. Because what we're likely to see then as a result of this would be, um, and Lucy's here with us, so she knows it's not like some secret, um, that this could cause a problem and it may there might be a letter that comes to us that says, this is what happens needs to happen next because you didn't do what we asked you to do and you couldn't meet the requirements. And it could also be, again, this is all within the time of when I prepared the document, when they requested the information and when we're having our board meeting. So sometimes those timelines get really skinny, but I'm also going on vacation starting tomorrow. So that does mean that I have to fill out this form. But somebody else could fill it out. I've left it in well, good hands. It could fill out this, but I'm, I'm, it's unlikely. And so we're letting you know ahead of time that it's unlikely. And we've let Lucy know that it's unlikely. And we've asked for 
what do we do next, and some guidance. And they are always good about giving guidance. Let me ask a question. Since this obviously was an issue last year, and it looks like it's going to be an issue this year, what, if anything, outside of that is, are we doing as an organization, hospital, medical facility, quote unquote, what are we doing in the meantime to initiate corrections to prevent that from happening in the future so that we can, so that we can cut, conduct uh, budgetary operations in a timely fashion and, and meet the state's requirements so that the state is not breathing down our necks for, for, uh, or telling us um, we're not approved because we didn't show up with the right paperwork at the right time. So a couple of a couple of things around that. It's the feds, not the state in this case, the FERSA. I don't know if that makes it any better, but it is the feds, uh, FERSA. Um, and we did a lot this year that actually made us a lot closer to our goal than we were last year. So last year, although we weren't able to do it, we were much farther from those entity financials. So you may remember that we didn't have any entity financials at all. Right. And they weren't developed at all. So this yeah. past year has been the development of those entity financials. And I would say that, you know, we're on the cusp of having them finalized. <laughs> but it's a lot of negotiation and conversation about how do we do this? Because it's something new that we're doing. Right. So I, I don't want to say that there's nothing been done over the past year. There has been. We had the ability to look at that budget last time um, uh, I want to say it was a couple of months ago, and that was one of the first times we had access to that. So, so that was a significant improvement. And we have our finance team that's really on the same page with us, and they want this as well for us. It's not that they're resisting the ask. It's that it's a lot of hard work because it's such a complex organization. Right. So I don't want you to feel that, you know, they're doing it despite you. I mean, that's really, <laughs> that's really not it. It's that you know, we have a very complex system here at Alameda Health System, and we go from, remember, the big Alameda Health System to ambulatory care. Okay. You squeeze that down into, then you've got your FQHCs, which is different from all of ambulatory care. Remember, our FQHCs, ambulatory care is bigger than FQHCs. FQHCs are very specific, and that's the entity they've created for us and tried to fill in all of our costs to create this thing of like, okay, what part is FQHC specifically? Okay. And then beyond that, you have your homeless health right. And there will, this BPR, this, this, this form, will essentially be that homeless health center space that we create once a year. But to get from this to this is complicated because you have so many um, interacting parts, mm. right? You know, in your homeless health center, part of your homeless health center is we have to have a well, we have a program director, that's Dr. Francis, but beyond that, we also have to have a CFO and a CMO and the, and the CEO do contribute to our homeless health center. Well, how do you account for that? Right. And so they do, they create systems by which to account for, okay, if you're this much of the budget, it's going to be this percentage of all of that overhead. And so they're doing all of that work to help us figure it out. And we try to figure it out also every year when we do the UDS report. And so we're closer. And it's this, this last part about some of these allocations, which when you see the budget, the entity financial, which shows us a deficit, but you do have all these allocations and they have to decide how they're going to allocate them to cover that. Within, within the system here, just like for argument's sake, 
Um, I'm just thinking about this. Um, let's, let's just say when we get the when we get the budget um, to uh, to uh, pass on when we get when we get our budget and it's up to us now to vote for that budget and accept that budget. Uh, can we not? Can we not uh, certainly just say a note of that particular budget uh, uh, if uh, within the scope of maybe trying to um, get more to increase the creation to create um, um, to give us uh, more alloc allocation from the larger from the from the larger budget for operating for operating purposes. Right, I think that's what you guys get to decide to do, right? That's part of the discussion you would have. But first, we need to put something in front of you to have that discussion. Right. And so that's your authority. Um, I would say that, again, you're working in a co-applicant agreement with uh, the Board of Trustees, and we could review that co-applicant agreement again. Um, it could be that there's a negotiation, right? You can't approve a budget that they don't approve Right. Either, right? So it would right. be a negotiation. Do, does everybody approve that this change would happen? But we'd have to put something in front of you first. Yeah. I do want to add that in, in the conversation of the budget, I do have a guest speaker here, Dr. Ng, who um, was going to say a few words about the budget in relationship to dental, only because part of yeah. that budget, remember, that you guys looked yeah, at before dental. was your capital budget. And the capital budget included the dental expansion. And so we thought that this would be a good opportunity for her to just give a really brief, high level, she hasn't forgotten about you, um, <laughs> update on, on some things that are going on with dental. Hi, Charmaine. Hi, I haven't forgotten about you. Hopefully you haven't forgotten about me. No. <laughs> um, so yeah, really high level. I know you, um, you know, all, um, we're aware of the expansion project, the, the dual expansion project that we're doing. Uh, one is at Eastmont Wellness Center, which is well underway for the adult dental expansion. But this uh, secondary um, expansion is the um, at Highland Hospital, and it is going to be really a, a moving of a clinic um, from the current dental clinic, which is in the E2 wing, um, to the um, you know, potentially HCP3, which is currently where the ex uh, executive suites reside, um, which you're there, you're there in HCP conference room. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. So, um, you know, with that, we wanted to, because, you know, it would be a, a part of that FQHC. Um, currently, our FQHC, um, you know, it is defined by four walls, which is in the E2 wing. So we would have to, you know, submit paperwork and whatnot to change those four walls to be HCP3. So at a really high level, that is um, just wanted to keep you abreast. And the we're nowhere near, you know, even architectural or any way in, ready to move at all. But um, just as we're kind of going along in planning, I will be sure to keep you all updated. But that is, that's the goal, to move the clinic, correct? Yes, that is oh, the goal. wonderful. Yeah, so we brought this up in the um, health compliance program requirements and budget section because ultimately what will come to you, um, we wanted to give you the, the, just put it in your ear because there will be future meetings where there would be um, requests for action related to 
making those changes on our scope of work because it becomes a new site. Right here at LU Health System, the sites are very specific. It's E1 and E2, it's K7, it's ATP3, mm -hmm. ATP4, well, it's not ATP3 yet, but it would be ATP4, ATP5, so it would impact our, um, our health center where it's located and would require some action on your part. Um, but again, very, very beginning stages and we'll keep you are they thinking about moving the bridge clinic too? Oh, that's outside of, of, of our update today. Okay. I have a question. Um, yeah. Does she have any involvement basically in the pilot, the dental pilot program? Um, um, our um, dental our mobile? Program? Absolutely, uh, Dr. I, I want to know where, where are we exactly on the mobile program because I haven't seen pictures yet. Which I, I asked about regarding the, the, the development of the ambulance, the equipment on the ambulance. I haven't seen any of that. Yeah, and actually, we have them scheduled to come and visit us um, in a meeting coming soon with all the pictures and everything. Dr. Hall is going to come. I think we've got it on our agenda. If not for July, it's August. So oh, okay. that is that is coming soon. And okay. I appreciate I you asking. It's still, we're, we're working it. And we're working hard. I know you are. Thank you. It's coming. Um, so here then are your regular numbers. I think of that as, you know, your dental numbers are in here too. You're in your AHS uh, mobile health van for our uh, number of patients by department. So they're tucked in there with Dr. Hall and medical and dental together. Um, and I think it, it may be worth, I will we'll definitely pull those out when we do our uh, presentation on the dental mobile so that you can see exactly what has been mobile um, dental versus medical. Um, for that presentation to split them apart a little bit. Um, you can see our 3657 unindicated patients for the year and where they've been seen. You guys have seen this report a lot, so hopefully it's just a familiar, comfortable place. You know how to read it. Specialty still. Here's our time. Over time, you see specialty just moving up. Yeah. Welcome back patients, getting stuff done. Um, and again, this is specifically at Highlands compared to then our visits, which specialty is at more places than just Highland. And so you see our specialty visits outpace our primary care a bit. And so you see those trend of that up for specialty and across for primary care. All right, um, leadership, uh, it's almost the same thing you read every month, but with a few changes. I completed my, my term, Yay. my nine-month term as dental um, last Friday. It was such a wonderful experience. Thank you so much, Dr. Ng, for having me for as long as you did. I learned a lot there, and there's a new practice manager there. Her name is Nade Bosinova. Uh, she has worked in the dental clinic previously. Um, both as an RDA, a registered dental assistant, as well as the administrative assistant. So she really knows how things work. Um, and so she started on Monday. I got to hang out with her yesterday and today as well, just to be available if needed. Of course, I was not needed, but, um, but it was fun times. And so you'll probably meet her soon in the future as well to talk more about um, dental and stuff because she's still involved with that. Uh, Dr. Francis provided a report to the Board of Trustees in the, their May meeting, 
And so we attached that report for you so that you could see what he reported to the Board of Trustees. And uh, we got some really good feedback as we usually do from the Board of Trustees. They like to see our presentations there. You can listen to that report and hear their engagement and questions by um, going online to Albion Health System and, you know, their... Is the their... band schedule also on there again? Okay, so... Is it lessons? This... This report is on the Alameda Health System Board of Trustees um, and on your Alameda Homeless Health Center minutes packet. But the, to listen to the report is the Board of Trustees um, recording. Okay. For the Homeless Health Center Mobile Health Clinic, that is always posted on the Alameda Health System website. If you go under Community Health, right, and then there's Homeless, and then there's the the schedule. Okay. It's there because Brenda puts it there. Okay. So if you ever can't find it, yeah. you just call Brenda and she'll help you click. Okay. okay. I mean, the clicks are yeah. hard to come by. And unfortunately, we can't just give you a link because that link changes every month, every time she posts yeah. a new one. Uh, so it's not a consistent okay. link. So it's really about knowing how to find it okay. rather than using the same link. And I know that makes it hard. Thank I'm you. sorry. It's okay. complicated. And have you changed um, the sites to where you're visiting? Um, so they are working on their monthly schedule. The mobile health clinic is working on their monthly schedule, um, but it hasn't happened yet. I think that they're they're planning to launch it once that van is actually on the road because it's oh, hard okay. to make that shift with only the RV. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. And we'll have uh, we'll have Lafayette come. And, and do a, a visit with you as well at one of these meetings and he'll give you the full scoop on everything mobile. Um, if you happen to be coming by Alameda Health Systems Highland Hospital, well, Michigan Highland Hospital campus on Monday, Juneteenth, um, the mobile unit will be in the courtyard. Oh, so really? Will be welcome to come and see it. I know several of you have seen it already, but for those who haven't, Quite they'll they'll be there. Very amazing. And mostly as a show and tell, right? To be accessible to some of our staff who don't typically get the opportunity to go out and see it. So we bring you to on Monday? This coming Monday. Oh, this coming Monday. Where whereabouts? In the courtyard, so outside, you know, in the when you come in the mazes. and you look to where the maze is in the middle, the right. of the garden, the healing garden. Oh. It'll be in there. Oh. There's a big driveway. Yeah, this drive right up. Oh. I will mention yeah, that tomorrow. So I how you guys is going to get that in there. We're going to airlift that. Yeah. We're going to drive up the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to open the gate. And they're going to drive right onto the platform. This cool. I guess I never there. looked at. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, um, it's big. There's it's a still a side over here. Yeah, there's okay. a side of the, yeah, the driveway. Take hey, you on a tour. <laughs> you know, I haven't been since.
Um, I don't know if we have any public comment. Is there, any, public is there comment? any members of the public who would like to comment? There's, we're down to the five. <laughs> Lucy, Charmaine. <laughs> they, they're like, no. No, no. Okay. Any co-applicant board member comments? Yeah. I, I'd like to just say one thing. Uh, I'm sorry that I did get off topic, I guess, um, regarding um, um, my contribution to the to to uh, uh, to the abortion issue. But uh, the only thing that bothered me about that was I didn't understand. I still don't understand why that wasn't fair game. We will check in with Kayla on that when she's feeling a little uh, better. The only reason why I say that is because. Um, because the, the, the question was regarding abortion. All I was pointing out is that there's more than one person invo involved, and we, we never talk about that other person in the room. And I, I just thought that it was important for maybe we should provide services on the other side as well. And I think Dr. Altshuler agreed with you. I think that yeah. Um, yeah. the did. next point she was did. just the whole presentation was going a little long and it was starting to go a little off track so we were trying to pull it back to so i think i think the, the question initially was great and then once it got a little more um, <laughs> uh, specific engaging it, it started to it started to pull that's uh, all okay that's so, exactly so right heather that's yep originally fine but then yeah we kind of went a little too far left so okay. yeah just, okay. a, just like yes Comments good. Comments great. Okay, but now let's let's focus and let her do her thing. Okay. You want to ask uh, questions um, for sure, though. At this point in time, when you yeah. ask whether board members have remarks to make, uh -huh. is this a, at, at this a point in time that I can actually uh, uh, suggest um, uh, topics for the agenda? Absolutely. Well, I like I like that service for 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 men as part of a topic on our next agenda. Thank you for the suggestion. I will be meeting with your board chairs to determine whether we can fit it up to the agenda. Okay. Great. Okay. Any other board member comments? No. Okay. We are adjourned at 8.04. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.